Welcome back to the second season of the Entrepreneurial Mindset. On today's episode, we have a good friend of mine, someone who's inspired me a lot, and someone that's achieved a lot of accolades and success, Prithvi Santana. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Back when I was in high school, Prithvi was my teacher for biology, and I remember being in the in the center and on the promotional po- poster besides his name, listed all these achievements, 99.95 ATAR, first in the state for bio, fifth in the state for chem, 16th in the state for maths. Now he's a sixth year medical student at UNSW. He's a small business owner and he's a YouTuber and content creator. I mean, I just gave you a good introduction there, but for those listening, maybe introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name is Prithvi. I'm currently in my sixth year of medicine, so I'm finishing off in a couple of months, which is pretty exciting for me. Uh, I'm pretty interested in sport, very interested in YouTubing, creative work so anything involving content creation is something that i've been really getting into recently um and i think you've done the rest so thank you for gassing me up (laughs) yeah of course i mean you only got into like youtube and content creation during lockdown right yeah exactly it's kind of a creative outlet for myself yeah yeah did you always have that creative outlet or no i actually didn't it was very much a binary of of fitness and studying and i wanted to kind of branch out and think about social impact and also think about storytelling and creative work for myself so that's what led me to youtubing and podcasting as well did you have anyone you watched like oh, you were inspired by? Quite, quite a few people, actually. So uh, I'm sure everyone knows Ali Abdel, the productivity master. So he was really good. But I also wanted to, to follow YouTubers that captured the reality of life and, you know, the struggle of exams, balancing. And there's a YouTuber called That Medic that I, I watch. Mm-hmm. And he does, like, travel videos as well. And that gives me free happiness watching him. So I wanted to kind of do my own storytelling of my life and create accountability and goals with that. Kind of replicate that. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I've, I've loved watching him yeah channel. and i'm very excited to watch the other episodes of this podcast given that you guys have you know <laughs> such an all-star team that if i was in year 12 i would definitely want to listen to yeah of course i mean speaking of year 12 let's take it back to the beginning where it all started kind of essentially mm. um talk about your work ethic in high school you know you achieved a 99.95 ATA and you don't do that without having a good work, e- work ethic um so how are you able to achieve this ATA? And, and as well as your state rankings. Yeah. I think I think just to give the audience a bit of perspective, I wasn't always driven at all. Like I did yeah. very average in the year six selective school exam. I barely scraped it, made it into a part selective school. Mm-hmm. And I was a very average student getting C's all the way until year 10. And I think what changed was during year 10 time, I was very interested in science. And I was looking at all the different applications of science that there are in society. And I was very drawn to the concept of becoming a doctor and all the opportunities and diversity that being a physician or surgeon had. So my goal from year 10 to 12 had nothing to do with ATAR, which is Mm. usually what students, you know, gear their goals towards ATAR or even uni course. Mine was job. And I wanted to do anything I could to get to that spot. So I guess one of the first big things was in order to help my work ethic, I had a big, bigger vision beyond an ATAR and a university course. So that was super helpful. Um, I mean, not not yeah. a lot of students in year 10 even have that lesson. Yeah, and I also think it's completely fine not to have something yeah. like that because when you're so young, you're not sure what career you want to do. And I don't think it's normal for every student to already idealize one single profession. But uh, for me, I was fortunate enough to have that bigger vision and that was a huge drive to get me to do work on the days where I really didn't feel like it. What what drew you to medicine? What drew you to being having that vision of being a doctor? You know, I remember in year 10, I was... Uh, uh, outside of school, I would just open up an encyclopedia of science, look at atoms, really? quantum physics, biology, and just literally do my own notes. And I really found that so interesting, just that endless search of knowledge, understanding the human body, understanding the universe. And so it was all about concentrating all of that energy that I had towards science, towards kind of an intersection with humanity which is what medicine is, right? It's not just a pure science. It's a lot of interaction with patients. Every day is different. You don't know what comes in that door. And that was very exciting for me. Interesting. I feel like for a lot of people, like hearing what comes through that hospital door is like overwhelming for me, you know, like what happens if I'm not ready for that situation? Yeah. And I think that challenge is what makes the career so exciting that, you know, you can never be fully ready. And it's that constant challenge where it's not too overwhelming, but it's just challenging enough that you constantly improve and the output is you give back to society, which I think is one of the greatest sense of purpose you can have. Yeah, fair enough. So then in year 11 and 12, you kind of made a 
a work schedule? Yeah, so year 11 was the first year I started putting effort in high school. (laughs) And it was a good test because it showed me, even though I put in a lot of hard work, I didn't come first in science even, which is very confronting to me. (laughs) Um, So I guess year 11 really showed me that it's not just all about hard work. It's all about playing the system towards your strengths and breaking down the larger goal, which is an ATAR. Mm. I think the ATAR or year 12 is a huge marathon. And I think it's not about, you know, hard work every single day and motivation at all, which is what people think. Yeah. I burnt out. Those days where I didn't feel like doing any work. Yeah, because I, I was going to ask you, like, yeah. did you ever experience burnout? Yeah, and we'll come to that. Yeah. So um, for me, it was all about how do I break this huge goal of becoming a doctor down into smaller steps, into everyday actionable items. So what I actually did okay. was I thought, okay, what ATAR do I need to become a doctor? And unfortunately, it was 99.6 or above. And I did not think I could get that at that time. And then I went and used those reverse ATAR calculators. And I thought, you know, what subject marks do I need to get that ATAR? And Mm -hmm. I kind of forecasted it. And then I asked my teachers, what rank last year got that subject mark? So if I wanted to get 97 in science or biology, I need to be rank one. I I find that out. And so then my goal throughout the entire year was how do I get that rank one? And so it's all about what mark do I need in my next assessment task? What's the weighting? And I'd break it down in that way. And so now what I did was I broke down this huge mountain, which is ATAR, which is so fluffy for students, into every day, every week actionable items. And I think that helped in reaching the vision a ton. Okay. I mean, did you did you have a study life balance? Did you have a social life? Were you able to see? Yeah, look, you have to. Because it sounds like every day you just have these (laughs) things to tick off. Yeah. Look, it was a compromise, but... The way I saw it was I have my whole life to have fun. And I was only 16, 17 in year 12. I would hang out with friends. I just wouldn't go to, you know, all the late night parties and I wouldn't wake up the next day on time, that kind of situation. But I did hang out with friends a ton and I did have a really good social life in year 12. And I'm very thankful for that balance because that actually protects you from burnout. I guess when you foster all your energy towards one single goal, you're more prone to getting burnout. Whereas if you kind of break your energy into multiple things like social life, creativity, sport, and studying, you kind of protect yourself from kind of getting overwhelmed by one single task. Well, I was going to ask you, did you do any extracurricular activities? So like sports or? Yeah, I, I did basketball. But yeah. then, you know, in year 11, I had this very ambitious goal of being, you know, a NBA. semi-pro basketball <laughs> player. Um, very quickly fell out the window. Um, but I remember I was really contending. You know, don't want to be a doctor or don't want to, you know, oh, wow. struggle like to make a living yeah. and maybe try basketball and just give it all in. Yeah. I think in year 12, I decided no chance. Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, statistically, there was a minimal chance yeah. I would become even semi-pro <laughs> basketball. So I thought, you know, how about I make this a creative, um, so a sports endeavor. And so I kind of did that on the side. I played uh, regional level basketball in year 11. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of simmered down in year 12 and took it more like a therapy session where every day I was overwhelmed. I'd just shoot a few hoops, take some time to myself. And I think that was very uh, conducive to not burning out. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, even like in your recess and lunches, you would have played basketball or yeah, you were in the, in the library right. studying? No, I actually yeah. never studied in the library, okay, right? <laughs> I would play basketball. And the only time I would study during recess and lunches is if friends came to me asking for help. Yeah, fair and enough. I found teaching my peers, even though it seems like, you know, you've, you improve no. the competition, which is not what you want to do. Yeah. It actually improves your own understanding of a concept. No, and, helps, you know, yeah. it was... Later on, I guess, I discovered teaching was one of my hugest passions, which I guess we'll discuss soon. Yeah. Um, Well, so you said you prevented yourself from burning out by, like, breaking down your tasks into achievable goals. Yeah. That's good. I guess a few other very high-level things that I did was I really found my motivation. And for me, I guess it's different for everyone. Some people like to compete with themselves. I like to compete with other people. So my goal, what I kind of did was... Um, I tried to reinforce discipline in my work rather than motivation because motivation is really transient and it's not a good wave to ride if you want to run a marathon like the HSC. So I did a few weird things. I put the HSC countdown. You guys know that website which ticks by the second, the day is two HSC exam. I made the bookmark that as my homepage. So every time I went on the internet, it stressed me out (laughs) instead of YouTube, I'd actually get to work. And a few other things I did was I bookmarked websites which had, you know, medical students and their ATARs and their their ranks. And my goal was to beat those students who'd graduated and gone into medicine. So a lot of them got 99.95, first in the state, James Roos. And I guess I just had to recalibrate my competition to 
those kinds of students because mm. those are the students that end up getting in those courses not a semi-selective school average kid mm. so i really had to find my competition and my drive for that which was also very important for me mm. yeah that's interesting i feel like a l- i i never thought of that in high school like not i was more focused on competing with the peers than like yeah. really competing with the top of no, the top yeah i was i was very keen on helping my peers and lifting them up and yes. rather than competing with, with the top school or the top students in the state yeah yeah i mean they say like if you if you can teach it like i found teaching if i wanted to understand something i'd be like to my friends can i just teach it to you can i just explain it to you and maybe yeah. that'll help me as well exactly, exactly. And, it, and it did it improves your articulation as well and i guess the final two things that i really did um, to really help with my ATAR was I focused on output rather than input. I think a lot of students, I get this question so many times, which is mm. how many hours do I study a day? Mm. I think that's the most redundant question you could ask because someone could study two hours and get two times as much work done as a student that does four hours. Mm. So I shifted my work towards project-based tasks. So every day, what are three actionable output-based items I could do, like complete one-pass paper. That is an output that you can actually focus on mm-hmm. rather than I'm going to study five hours of biology. Yeah. So I kind of right. switched it that way as well. And I think everyone knows this, but pass papers, pass papers, pass papers. Yeah. And I guess the difference for me was I really made sure that I never made the same mistake again. That was my mantra yeah. whenever I did a pass paper. I don't care how many mistakes I made, never make it again. Mm. And I guess before my exams, while everyone was looking at their 40 pages of notes, you know, before the HSC, before they're going into the hall and everyone's stressed out, I was just looking at palm cards, not even of notes, but the mistakes I made throughout the year. And the goal was do not make that in that exam hall. And I guess those final two points were really actionable things that I did that I think really boosted my chances of getting my goal course. Where where did you get these ideas of like doing focusing on output rather than input when everyone was focusing on input or like did you have a mentor or uh, I did so this is a I think mentors are so important I yeah. think you know this whole podcast and other episodes kind of give students an opportunity to yeah, get that exactly. mentorship from other um, very successful people uh, for me it was again YouTube. Okay. Ali Abdal, etc. Yes, I really right. loved all of that, and I guess another point was I had a teacher myself, who was in his sixth year of medical school at UNSW. He went to my high school and he loved teaching. And you could see the passion in what he taught and you could see the passion in, you know, his degree and his course. And it gave me someone that I could project who I wanted to be in the future. I think that was so important for me as well. That's good. Yeah. Because I was just thinking, like, how did you think of these ideas, you know, to do move away from the norm kind of wanted to be like him <laughs> yeah <laughs> no simple goal and yeah. i'm sure there's someone listening that now wants to be like you and now it's going to implement these steps exactly i would love like my my happiest thing would be to mentor other students yeah and to kind of get them where they want to be in yeah. terms of their work and career life as well for sure i mean this leads to the next question i had which was like if you were to look back on a year 11 version of yourself and you're like what would be the key things you would tell like a younger version of yourself or key tactics basically like in a in a short sentence like do this and you know this can be the outcome that you want i mean we touched on it a lot during that conversation but mm. i guess if i could summarize it mm. it would be vision and action when it comes to vision when you're in your 11 start thinking bigger than university course right? Because mm. a lot of people do university course and then get into a dead end in terms of their job or they pick a job they don't like. So project how have a vision towards a career or a field that you want to work in and then work backwards and break it down. And the second point, which is action, which is it's not all about hard work, mm. right? There are definitely people that worked harder than me. It's about working as efficiently as possible, tracking your progress. And when you see that you're deviating from your expected growth, optimize it or make change so vision and action would be the two most important things that's so important i feel like not even for high school like you can imply that apply that to anything you want to do yeah they're quite universal principles that i think i learned from year 12 i wish i knew this in year 11 so like instead of working backwards instead of working forwards a lot of people like think okay i'm going to do this then this then this it's very hard the other way around so true so then moving on to that from high school then like you mentioned career in medicine you wanted to do Mm. and you are doing yep uh, so you decided to pursue a career in medicine. Yep. And your main motivations were the fact that you were very intrigued 
And yeah, so there's quite a few different motivations. And I think everyone might be thinking, you know, well, this is an ethnic kid, medicine. Surely the parents <laughs> pushed this guy, right? He's just speaking or copying what they told him. But my parents never once pushed me to even the healthcare field. In fact, they tried to get me to work at McDonald's and KFC when I was in high school. And I had to tell them, no, I want to do medicine. <laughs> um, Weird story. I got rejected from McDonald's. With, that's another <laughs> story. Yeah, but yeah, that was oh very interesting. God. But um, anyway, better, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> coming back to this, I guess I was very interested in science, the outside world, the universe, quantum physics, and the human body. Those are the three most important pieces of science that I was so intrigued by. And I wanted to devote my life towards learning and understanding that. And I got a lot of enjoyment from learning, understanding, and teaching those principles. And I also thought about how can I apply this in a way that has an output to humanity. Mm. And so medicine instinctively became a very interesting option because every day you see patients and you see the translation of science to everyday health and humanity. When you give medications or you perform a surgical procedure, you use the science of anatomy, physiology, and you see the actual humanity effect where you save a daughter or a, or a mother from mm -hmm. a terminal cancer or an illness. I think that was so rewarding and I wanted to work in that field where I was using science and I saw its implication every day, which I think research is, is great for, but you don't see that immediate translation. So I was a bit selfish. I wanted dopamine hits from the work I did. Yeah. And I guess the second most important thing was teaching. I love teaching. I wanted to do something where I would always have the opportunity to teach. And I guess teaching solely by itself, you can't see the application or the output of your knowledge as per the first point I mentioned. But uh, when you do medicine, you're always teaching medical students when you're a junior doctor. You're mm -hmm. teaching junior doctors when you're a consultant. You're teaching entire universities when you're a professor. Yes. And I guess my goal is I envision myself as, you know, a 70-year-old old, old man who's finished, you know, doing surgery or medicine and just teaching and being that teacher that really pivots a student's knowledge and interest in the field in medicine. Yeah. So I think that was um, the reasons why I got into the field. Did you ever do work experience before? Like in high school, a lot of students do high, uh, work experience. Yeah, unfortunately, I did not get that opportunity to do yeah. work experience. Yeah, so it was quite interesting that I, I thought of all this even before I yeah. had any direct experience working at a hospital. Uh, I would definitely encourage people to do that, though, in yeah. retrospect. I think that was just a lazy effect on my end of not doing work experience. I mean, it, it's, I mean, it turned out fine, to yeah. be honest. But yeah. Was there any, I was going to ask, has there been any times where you thought maybe a doctor wasn't for you? You know, quite recently, uh, in, in your fact, after, you know, going through right now, for places? the past two years, I've been doing rotations in yes. hospital in yes. different specialties, uh, surgery, medicine. And I guess you realize in medicine, usually it requires a devotion of a huge portion of your life, especially something like surgery, where you have to devote everything to that cause. And the exams are extremely tough. And uh, weirdly enough, for spots like neurosurgery, there's only one spot in the entire country. And all oh, the smartest of the smartest are competing to get that. So there's a very high chance that a lot of applicants don't get into that specialty, yeah. which is what a lot of I guess, students would not be aware of. I didn't know that I in didn't year 12, know that, how competitive yeah. it was. Yeah. And I thought, you know, would that really be conducive to my happiness if I pick a career where I'm struggling and I maybe never get my goal or mm -hmm. and a career where I don't get the time or capacity to do things outside of my career? The freedom to maybe, you know, do a healthcare startup if I wanted to mm -hmm. or maybe work on a charity or take a year off to do volunteer work. You don't get that opportunity when there is a constant progression and race to get to the top. Mm -hmm. Um, but otherwise, I've never looked back on the decision of medicine. I think it's the only, one of the only things I, I'm good at. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. No, that's good. I mean, then the opposite side from your placements or your work, like working as a um, in your rotations, w was there a moment where you realized, yes, I've made the right choice. This is the career for me. Yeah. Look, I'm not an emotional person, right? So yeah. I don't really cry. Um, but this year has been very, very um, confronting, but a huge learning curve for me in seeing the humanity and the, the art of medicine. Yeah. So I guess just the other week, I saw a patient pass away in front of my eyes when we were doing CPR and the daughter came in the room and you know they had to make the decision to seize you know life care and support. And um, there were other times where that had happened, but the doctor had saved the patient's life. Mm -hmm. And that equally brought tears of you know joy and you know reward that 
you get to work with people. This is not science. This is people at the most vulnerable stage in life. And your goal is to rehabilitate them, bring them back to their family, you know, back to society. And I thought, you know, that's one of the greatest things you can do in serving others using science. So I think for that reason, it's so, so emotionally confronting, but also rewarding. Yeah. That, you know, I, I think this is a career I want to do. Was that like, I could like you were still like a student, basically. Yeah, yeah. Was that quite overwhelming? It is, yeah. And, you know, there's been so many other events. I'm just bringing up one that came to the top of my head. Yeah. But, you know, you, you do medical oncology where people get cancer and all of them pass away. But, you know, you get to support them or improve their quality of life when they're nearing the end. And even that is very rewarding because it's not just about bringing people, you know, or keeping them alive but it's about making sure they're comfortable and taken care of and they maintain their dignity um, towards the end stages of life as well. Yeah. So there's yeah, it's a lot of dynamic experiences that I've had. I can imagine that could be quite like impactful even. And it matures you. I think that's yeah. a, another huge thing. You get to constantly reflect on your own humanity and your own life and you know how important it is that you seize all those opportunities because you see people at the other end yeah maybe wish they'd done things differently or wish they'd you know yeah etc did you yeah. did you ever watch any, like any medical shows when you were like no, now i can't i'm allergic yeah. to them oh really it's so unrealistic yeah so now okay. i see it my only the only thing i can do is to pick apart all the things that are wrong, wrong that makes sense, <laughs> right like this do you watch a do you watch right. a medical show i used to like Which there was a, the good doctor yeah the good doctor so that guy he does heart surgery brain surgery every surgery it's <laughs> not how it works you train 40 years to do one specific specialty whereas he's doing a heart transplant on monday and a brain yeah. you know, surgery on tuesday which um, is very interesting. I'd like to do that, but I think in, in a lifetime, no human can become an expert of all <laughs> surgeries in the body. I mean, I was asking the show question because in those shows, the junior doctors or the students are just placed in and the senior doctors are like very condescending to them or like they're just like placed into this and they have to like react on the spot. That, was it quite like that? That does happen in hospital. You get yeah. asked a lot of questions on the spot and you don't know the answers to yeah. some of them. And, you know, sometimes you do get told off. And I guess there is... There is an improving culture in medicine. I'm not condemning the culture. They're improving. Yeah. Um, but there are definitely times where there are experiences of bullying that my peers, etc., have faced. Um, okay. And that stuff does happen, yeah. um, even as a junior doctor with consultants, etc. And moreover, in surgery than medicine, there's this huge uh, I guess, patriarchal culture where the people at the top get to decide and um, you know make really tough working conditions for junior doctors. So that's a lot of... It is, how, I guess. How true come to some it's extent. like that? Do they do that on purpose? Have or? you have you seen have you heard of Yumika Kododa? She was a plastic surgeon in Bankstown. No. And she had to admit herself in hospital because she worked so many hours. Uh, I think her name was Yumiko. Apologies if I got it wrong. Um, but she worked so many hours, more than hundred hour weeks, to the point where her body started to break down. Um, she had to admit herself in hospital and she quit medicine. So that's just a single testament that can show you how intense it can get in the field. Yeah. So there is some realism to that. I feel like it's especially the specializations that you choose, I guess, especially the surgery. Orth surgery yeah. Orthopedic. Yes. Orthopedics. I think Obstage. the toughest ones, uh, there's quite a few, but pretty much any surgery, maybe cardiothoracics, for example, is all very tough to get into. And I guess the, you need to really, a lot of doctors do suck up to the bosses to yeah. make sure they increase the odds of getting in the program. So, yeah, look, politics is everywhere. We can yeah. go on, but I think, you know, it's, it's prevalent in business. It's prevalent in any field, but it is also pre present in medicine. I mean, earlier we were having a chat before the camera started recording of what specialization you wanted to do. Yeah. You mentioned surgery, but you also mentioned you weren't sure. Yes. Is there a specialization you're not going to do that you know? You're not going to? <laughs> yes, but I don't want to. I don't want to put down that specialty <laughs> in any way. Yeah, I think there enough. are definitely people who can do that yeah. specialty and do it very well. Yeah. It's just for me personally, yeah. it doesn't synergize with my strengths and the type of patients I want to see. So I went into medicine wanted to be a pediatrician. Yes. I was like, children being sick yes. is the toughest thing to see because they have a whole life ahead of them. And if you even limit their functional capacity at a young age, it transforms their entire life trajectory. Mm. But then I went into pediatrics, you know, um, and I did not realize you can't talk to these people. They're crying. They're babies, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're kids. So you have to play detective work. And on top of that, you're not treating one patient. You're treating two. You're treating the parent who's very protective, sometimes yeah. aggressive, which is a defense mechanism. And so it does become very hard 
to take care of the sick child. You know, you have to really play Sherlock Holmes and look at, you know, he's got a runny nose that could indicate an upper respiratory tract infection, that kind of logic of thought. And I realized that's not for me. <laughs> so I guess the thing to understand is in the field of medicine, whatever you start off wanting to do is completely different to what you end up doing. And even still for me, yeah. I'm saying surgery, but I'm still completely unsure in the next five years where I'll end up, which is exciting for me. And is it like if you choose a specialization... You can turn back and choose another one, or do you have to? That's tough. It depends. Depends. If you do something like neurosurgery, you can't you really go to, back because yeah. you, you, you only did the brain, where if you want to do cardiology after, you have to start all over again. Whereas if you do something such as cardiology, you have to first know general health and physician training. So you can go back and do neurology or some other specialty. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, the answer is it depends on the specialty. Fair enough. All right. So the next question I had for you was, would you recommend a career in medicine to anyone in high school listening? Yes and no. Yeah. I guess the I'll start with the yes part, which is that this is one of the most fulfilling careers you can do. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, you're working with very vulnerable people. It's not just science; it's art, humanity, and its intersection with science. And uh, there is a place for everyone in medicine. If you don't like talking to patients, you can be a surgeon, right? The patient's asleep the whole time. Or you can be a radiologist who just looks at scans all day. If you love talking to patients, be a physician. If you want to change the lives of thousands of people, be a public health doctor. So there are just so many places you can go. If you want to work in business, med tech consulting, right? Mm-hmm. There are just so many avenues you can take this career. It doesn't have to be the traditional be a doctor. So I think in that sense, there is a place for everyone. And so it's a very welcoming field in that sense. But I do want to really reinforce, I guess, the general public, the reasons they see medicine as enticing is because of prestige sometimes mm-hmm. and sometimes also due to income. And I think I want to really reinforce this, that you will be working so much harder for a marginal increase in your income compared to the general population. Mm-hmm. So I think anyone who's doing it for the money is very quickly going to get shot down because of how tough the working conditions are if your metric is money, mm-hmm. right? And just to reinforce, uh, any idea, babe, what a junior doctor makes? What's their base salary? I would say, from your tone of voice, <laughs> 30,000. 30,000 is quite <laughs> on the lower side because well, they jun- work long okay. hours. Junior, so they've graduated. They graduated, okay. yes, after six years of studying. Okay, I thought this was during placement. No, or no, no, okay. no. So um, they make about, the base is 69,000. Okay. Which is not much. If you think about, you know, a commerce student or a yes. um, business student who goes in consulting, they straight away go in and some some of them, my peers, get six figures. Yeah. So that's just to really dispel this whole myth about doing medicine for the money, which is what you should not be doing it for. Yes. Uh, and I guess the thing you also have to realize is it is tough and it can take a toll out of your life as well in the sense that, you know, depending on what field you pick, mm-hmm. the work-life balance can be very challenging and it may slow down the progression of other parts of your life, such as getting a house, having a child, etc. Doing the other things you want to do. Yeah, but I guess going back to my point, I don't want to put this, the entire field down. I think medicine is an amazing field to work in. For those that are in it for the right reasons. Yes, basically. exactly. I mean, can a can a student be initially enticed by the money, but then realize like there is more to this than money? Yeah. So this is more of an ethical question, actually. It's you know, is it the intention that matters or the outcome, right? Mm. Yeah. If they have wrong intentions, but the outcome is still saving lives and they're good at what they do, all means go by it. I'm sure there's and some doctors. I out know. There that are. There's definitely there's medical yeah. students that I'm friends with who are interested in medicine for the financial aspect of things. And I don't think it's any less valid than my intentions mm-hmm. because they will still be working hard and they know they can do a good job and they will be saving lives. So I have no problem with that. It's just for a person going into medicine, I just want to acknowledge if money is their driver, it's going to be very tough. Mm-hmm. I think that's what everything, you hear that with everything. Um, you know, if you're driven by money, you're not like, you're not going to achieve the success you want to mm. achieve. And I think that even applies, given that, you know, you guys are about entrepreneurship and yeah. discussing that. I think when you shift your goal of entrepreneurship from I want to make money to uh, how can I serve or create a product or service that meets uh, issue in the market or something. That solves people, a problem. Yes, yeah, solves a problem. I think when you shift it that way, that's when you really start making progress with your idea. 
Yeah, fair enough. I mean, going into that entrepreneurship, what do you think the future of medicine is? You know, is there any new innovations you've witnessed? Yeah. That you think will drastically shift how we operate today? You know, I did a, I did a podcast episode on this, on uh, my podcast, where we looked at, and I got two other medical students um, mm-hmm. who had very different ideas to mine, and we just sat down and we had a conversation, and I learned a lot from them. And I guess the big takeaways are, you know, business, uh, tech, they're all on pace with innovations, Mm-hmm. In especially in you know IT software computers technology, medicine on the other hand is fifty years backwards. So there is a hospital in Sydney. I'm not going to name the hospital, but um, they still do all their medical records with pen and paper. This is 2021. You're talking about yeah. where typing is you know 30 times faster, gets more detail. Think about the ripple on effects to healthcare when you write notes about a patient, you miss details, and that can eventually impact or make errors in healthcare. So when we're that backwards, even something as simple as a coding software or a website interface that can record patient data is a huge improvement. So I think there are so many improvements that can be made in medicine. And I guess a few things that I thought of, I'm very biased because I did biology, and so I'm very interested in the genetics space, but CRISPR-Cas9, and for those people who don't know what CRISPR-Cas9 yeah. is, in a sentence, it's cutting and pasting genes. We now have the capacity to play God, where if we want to have a child who's as fast as the same bolt, we oh, can find the that? genes that are causative, cut and paste that, and potentially change the entire genome or physical characteristics of that child. It is possible. Right now, there's a lot of legal limitations. Yeah, of course. But in this lifetime, we are going to get there which is a problem that a lot of people have to deal with. What are the ethical ramifications yeah. of this? You know, what can we do? Can we only use it for disease or can we, you know, improve physical appearance, intellectual characteristics? How's it going to affect employment, jobs? There's just so many ramifications there. There was a movie about that called Gadiger. I've heard, I've heard. Yeah, where it's, it's very similar. Where you, like, genetically tweak your, your offspring. You yes. can tweak it to have physical features or features you wanted to have yeah there's a lot of revolutions in the world there's the but there's um you know the coding revolution where you know the internet um, websites this whole cryptocurrency now which is changing society but i think biotech is going to be another huge driver of change for humanity as well Uh, going into other innovations in medicine there is a field of medicine with diagnostic testing and right now in hospital, if I want to test you, I would need to take about 10 ml of your blood. You know, it can be quite painful, use a lot of resources. Like a normal blood test? Yeah, okay. even a normal blood test is yeah. quite invasive, yeah, right? Is. And imagine doing that on a child who's very sick and needs that done every single day. It's mm-hmm. very invasive. Mm-hmm. I think minimally invasive testing is another very interesting field which can rapidly expand in the future, where maybe we can get, you know, a pinprick of blood. Yes. And quite we like can diabetes. do all the testing to actually diagnose um, conditions. Yeah, exactly like diabetes. Mm-hmm. I think that's another area of healthcare. And I think one of the more more direct changes that can be made is AI, right? Mm-hmm. I think anyone working in the AI space right now, coding AI, has the capacity to make huge changes outside of their field as well. And I think one of those things is in healthcare right now, when you get sick, a doctor asks you a ton of questions and they use a human brain, which is flawed, has biases to diagnose you. And sometimes we make mistakes. Commonly we can. If we can somehow find a way for AI to engage in the problem-solving aspects of medicine, right? Add a bunch of symptoms, look at it based on a huge database of patient clinical presentations and output a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It makes the diagnostic aspect of a physician almost redundant, where they just have to supervise what's going to happen and, you know, provide their own physical input. And I don't think that's going to take the job of doctors. What it will do is it will shift doctors to be more human. Right. And provide the humane aspect of care, which is counseling the patient, giving them treatment options, you know, providing emotional support. So I think that's a very interesting field that, if done right, can revolutionize healthcare. I mean, it's kind of already there, but it's not accurate. Like when you're sick mm. or you have something wrong. And you know, with that's you, something I wanted you. to work on, but I don't have time. And I was sitting in my <laughs> exams for fifth year, which were one of the toughest exams I've ever sat. Yeah. Um, but my friend, who's a coder, 
brought up this idea with me and I thought, you know, how cool would it be to at least work on it or just yeah. start, yeah. make some progress, and at least learn how hard it is to create something that impactful. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, I have another time. So if any listeners out there, you know, well, have you have a friend idea. who's a coder and do medicine, maybe you can take up that idea. <laughs> I mean, the, to your last innovation that you mentioned, the non-invasive like testing, mm. blood testing. I feel like one of the, I want to get like blood tests on just to see how my like regular body is functioning mm. and everything. But yep. the main drawback yeah. is the fact that I have to go to a center, get the blood drawn. Yes, get the blood drawn. Wait one all or two days. Exactly. And imagine potentially if you had a machine at home where you could simply finger prick your hand and, and it will tell you all your results about your healthcare and all your internal body physiology. I think that would be amazing. I think there was... Um, Theranos. Is that what you Was that the scam? Yes. yes that is why I brought this up as well. Yes. So there is a book called Bad Blood, which I yes. recommend everyone read. Uh, it's it's riveting. I usually like fiction, but this is a non-fiction. This is a um, real-life story about... Mm-hmm. I think Elizabeth Holmes is her yes, name. Yes, her name. And she fooled the whole world, reached a $4.5 billion valuation based on this technology that she marketed as what we're talking about, minimally invasive testing, but didn't have any scientific backing. I think to touch on again, um, so the Bad Blood book, for those that aren't aware, so Elizabeth Holmes, like Prithvi said, she kind of marketed a device that she said would be non-invasive blood testing and there was like a black box kind of type yes. thing. No one knew what was inside the box or how it worked. But exactly. Apparently it worked and it got a bunch of investors in it involved. It reached a $4.5 billion evaluation and it turned out to be a scam. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, you know, people like Bill Gates were supporting this, this uh, technology and startup, but uh, unfortunately it didn't work. So I think someone eventually will find a way. And yeah. I guess this is where there is an interface of medicine with science, the crude science. So mm-hmm. spectroscopy, all the stuff that year 12 students are learning. You mass apply that, yeah, yes. mass spectrometry, infrared. That's what you talk students are learning. That is exactly how we measure substrates or substances in blood. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm very happy that I have that knowledge because now if I want to work on some field like that in the next decade, I have the basic rudimentary terminology and vernacular to talk about those things, understand the problems and try solving it. I honestly think that that innovation is going to become reality quite soon even. I think even seeing how Elizabeth Holmes fa- failed, I think a lot of people are going to... Provides a backbone for yeah. a lot of other people to challenge themselves in that field. I think right now, the most immediate change will be AI. Yeah. And I think after AI and telehealth and all of those things, given the pandemic has shaped, changed healthcare entirely, after that will be imaging improvements where, you know, we can do an imaging investigation which tells you everything about that structure. We don't need to go X-ray, ultrasound, CT, MRI. We can go straight to an imaging technique that provides all the resolution and detail needed to diagnose any structural diseases of the human body. Is there anything we can't currently image? Or we've, like, separately, so... There's a lot of things that have... uh, Impairment. So x-rays, for example, they yes. only look at hard structures because that bones. reflects the actual x-ray, right? And so it's very specific to bone, whereas ultrasound only looks at soft tissue. Like muscles? Yeah. MRI is very expensive. So we typically don't do that, but it provides all the detail we need. But as you know, healthcare is restrained by economics. And so okay. MRIs can't be ordered for everyone. But eventually, yes. if we can reach an investigation that provides the detail of an MRI at a cheaper price... You know, it'll change healthcare entirely. Because think about all the diseases that are missed because we order a cheaper test. And it delays the diagnosis. It delays patient improvement. And I think after all the imaging improvements as well, then we'll have the CRISPR-Cas9 gene Mm. changes. And then finally, I think the improvement in testing would also happen as well. Do you reckon we're going to witness this all in our lifetime? Or? I hope so. How exciting would I that hope be? so. I mean, this, would, they sound would, exciting. You know, this, I want to I posit this idea to the audience. Uh a few decades ago, to sequence your entire genome and find all the genes that can cause you to be ill or die, you know, to know vibe, you know, what's your disease, what's your risk of heart disease, how will you die? To find that information out, it costs tens of thousands of dollars. But it's become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper that now, for a few hundred dollars, you can find your entire genome, have it sequenced in a USB and go to the GP, plug that in, and they'll tell you all the diseases you're at risk of, all the diseases you can pass on to your child, and even with accuracy, most likely the way you might die. Wow. And that's going to change healthcare entirely. Yeah. And that's the involvement of genes. So I think when year 12 students are learning biology, 
Their yeah. teachers don't tell them about this stuff. No. So they're thinking, why am I learning about adenine, guanine, cytosine? But when they think this is the changes that is going to, you know, tangibly impact their lives, yeah. then they understand why they're learning what they are, yeah. which I think needs to be more integrated in our schooling systems. I remember, I remember learning my genes in, in biology, the the unzipping and then the replicating. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. No, that's crazy. I did not know that existed. It's happening very soon, in our <sighs> lifetime. I mean, would you want to? Would you want to do that test? That's the thing. There's a lot of ethical ramifications. Again, you know, what if you get a diagnosis that there is no treatment for? Yeah. Then you just provide stress anxiety without you know any improvement coming. in your health. Yeah. And what if you find out something where the entire family now needs to get tested for? And it affects your insurance accessibility, right? It's weird. You know, in Australia, weirdly enough, we need to provide our genetic information for life insurance if we do a test. Okay, And that's yes, going to yes, increase yes, yes. your life insurance premium. So yeah, for sure. there's a lot of ramifications there. Would you do it? I would. You would do I it? I like knowing information, right? That's why I picked this time. Some information, <laughs> like... <laughs> I would take the risk, for sure. I would... I'm yeah. very much a control what you can, whatever you can't control, you can't control. let it happen kind of uh, vibe. And uh, so I would definitely do that. That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of left me questioning whether I would do it or not. Exactly. You will have to make the decision in your lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> let's leave that. <laughs> for the future, I guess. Yep. Um, okay, let's shift course to um, your small business. Mm. So you have a tutoring center mm. and an online platform mm. for high school students called yeah. edX Learning yeah, right. HSC. Yeah. So like I mentioned before, I first met you when you were my mentor in high school. Yeah. And since 2017, um, you've been mentoring students as well as balancing your medicine degree. Um, right. Talk to me a little bit about that balance. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there's been many sleepless nights where yeah. you've been completing an assignment or studying for an exam while simultaneously also marking papers or yeah. answering Look, I think any questions. To, to generally understand this, I guess when you go back to why I even started edX Learning, and it was because mm-hmm. especially in the area, I guess, of southwestern Sydney, there isn't any great teaching at an affordable price. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want students to have to pay premium to get access to not just great education, but great mentorship. What would be like the rate that that is like charged? So if you look at, you know, I don't want to name centers, but there are centers that will charge 50, 60 an hour, which I think is insane because mm-hmm. parents are barely struggling, especially with pandemic situations. And I think um, the minimum fee that can keep a center running, but also provide an impact to students would be the equilibrium that we'd want to get to. Uh The reason why edX was started was because I was one of the lucky ones. I was very close to not having a mentor or not having great teaching. And if I didn't have great science teaching, I would never be fascinated in science. I'd never become a physician. I'd never make an impact to society. I feel like there's a lot of Elon Musk's. There's a lot of really great minds that get lost in a schooling system or a tutoring space that just provides mass education with the intent of making profit. And so my goal was to start teaching and mentoring more so in my own way. Small group classes, personalized, the most affordable rate, but give them access to the best teacher who they can look up to as a role model. It doesn't just teach them about school, teaches them about global problems. Mm -hmm. Every day, every lesson I posit to my students, a global problem. You know, the global population is increasing. How do we solve it? And I get them in that problem-solving mindset. And every time we learn something, I think about explaining to them why they are learning it, capturing that fascination so they kind of take it on and that pushes them to work harder in their education and and have a vision for where they want to be. Mm -hmm. I think the most rewarding thing is to hear a student say, hey, sir, you know, you completely changed my approach to education. Now I want to do this course. I want this career thanks to you. And I've got it. You know, that's the most rewarding thing that I could get. And I hope the rest of my life I get to do that, but in different levels of education. So in medicine and then as a junior doctor as well. Um, re- regarding your question about the struggles of a business, I think every business works very hard. The, mm-hmm. you know, the, the small restaurant down your street, the owner would be working almost as hard as a multinational corporation. It's just they picked a different problem or a idea which they wanted to provide a service for. So even a small business like myself, 
it's very hard and I did yeah. not anticipate it would be this hard. So it's not, so, you know, you'd think, you know, he teaches Mark's papers per se, but there is so much to providing really great education. There's things I've listed a lot because I was thinking about what do I do? And there's just so much to it. There's resource creation and collation where I created thousands of pages yes. of booklets on science, yes. sleepless nights yes. where I didn't even know a student was going to get access to it because I was just working from home doing that while all my friends were studying medicine. And I felt a lot of uh, FOMO and guilt because I wasn't doing justice to my career. I was more t thinking about year 12 students who maybe I would never teach. Um, there was a the whole marketing and social media. I've never done that. I'm not a marketer. I don't sell myself. But I have to somehow engage and, you know, how can I reach these students that I want to help? Because mm -hmm. without good marketing, you never reach your target audience. Website creation. Spent months learning how to use Wix and create a website and how to improve the interface and enrollment workflows. You know, getting an admin staff who can do all the, you know, really hard yards with, you know, invoices, enrollments, all of that. Well, I can focus on what I'm best at, which is mentoring my students. Uh, there's a lot of logistical things. Accounting. I don't even know what GST yeah. was until yeah. a couple months ago or business activity statements and tax. And now you have to think about all of those factors as well so you can make sure you can reliably provide a service in the long term. So I think no matter what, I'm very happy because I get to teach a group of students to the point where last year we were teaching almost 100 students, mm -hmm. which I would never have been able to do by myself. Yeah. And at the same time, I learned so much about what it takes to do a business which is what I want to eventually work on as well on the side, some kind of business idea which solves a healthcare problem. That would be my ultimate calling later on in life. Mm, I mean, you had no business background prior no, to starting this own yeah. business. And a lot of our, our topics here at Generation Entrepreneur is starting your own business, taking the initiative. You know, were you, were you doubtful of like opening Very, your own center? Yeah, Was there any fears you had? For sure. Like you have to rent a place, number one. Yeah. I'm still a student, you know, yeah. I don't make any money at all. And then on top of that, I have to rent a huge place, um, you know, get admin, get a team of people yes. who are now looking out for me. I'm looking out for them, making sure that they get taken care of. There's just so much to it. And I remember to kind of give you all a picture beginning of this year, this first six months of this year, I didn't know studying for medicine completely, just look, yeah. put it away because I did not have time. I'd be pulling all-nighters, waking up at 3 a.m. or sleeping at 3 a.m., waking up at 6, going to hospital with like eye bags double the size, <laughs> not knowing any questions that I'd get asked. Yeah. And then the latter half of this year, I had to really switch base where I had to solely focus to pass my medical school exams. And I ended up doing well because, you know, I have a, a <laughs> mentality where I want to do my best and do yeah. justice to the career but this year was a tough year and I think for everyone wanting to start a business I think they should realize that there are a lot of steps beyond just business idea and action yeah. but at the same time be very excited to find a team of like-minded people that would join your cause to convert that idea into actuality and I think the process or journey and the learning in that especially a startup where you get external funding which is completely different yeah. to a small business mm -hmm. very different I think there's so much to learn in the process rather than thinking about, I want to be a millionaire. I want to, you know, exactly make an impact. Focusing on the process rather than the output. Yeah. And that's what I've been doing my whole life. I think focusing on journeys is what gives you happiness and purpose rather than, you know, what you want to materially have in 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, you weren't only like doing a business and doing a unicorn. You would starting that own business you were teaching in it as well as doing a medicine degree which a lot of people just if they're doing a medicine degree they they only devote their time yes, to the medicine degree yes, yes. so did you find like that impacted your ex you said you did well but was there was there ever any exams that you didn't do well in like was where you were like okay this like i need a shift you know, I'm I'm very ambitious and competitive so, so what i do <laughs> is i find a way so okay. i think um with my youtube channel what i did was i realized how can I get myself to stay disciplined and do, you know, 10 to 12 hour study days? Because that's what it got to. Either I do that or I fail my exam. And I realized if I live stream myself, right, other people get to hold my accountability. Someone watching my live stream is watching me do work. And so I need to keep doing work. Otherwise, I look like a loser if I just hop off and play games, right? So... What I did was I externalized accountability and that really helped me and I ended up doing what I've never studied as much in my life. In the HSC, I was studying maybe four hours max a day on a school day. This year, I studied 12. I did more than 12 hours on a single day, which I was 
shook by. And it was just because of putting music, starting a live stream and thinking of the bigger goal. I mean, I have your, I haven't subscribed to your YouTube channels yeah. and I get notifications when you yeah, upload a video. Yeah. So I would get a notification around like midday that you're starting to yeah. do your live stream. And at like nine o'clock at night, I would go on my YouTube and it would still be like live. And I guess we'll talk about this soon, but with my YouTube channel, the goal was never to get, you know, famous or anything like that. <laughs> it was, you know, how can I storytell? How can I, you know, get accountability with my goals? And how can I capture moments that make me happy? Mm-hmm. And how can I find my tribe of like-minded people who, you know, think similarly to me, who would like to meet me, interact with me, and we could kind of grow together? Yeah, no, fair enough. How's that feedback been from like students? Yeah. In, they, in terms of from edX learning? From just your students or your, your following yeah, watching so, your live stream? Yeah. So I think especially for my students, they've had someone to look up to yeah. rather than just learning content from. And so a lot of my students have messaged me, especially in the COVID pandemic because of online classes, of how much of an impact that I had in keeping them motivated and driven to do work. My students would join my live stream as well. Mm-hmm. You know, those times where I'd go on Microsoft Teams, which is what we used to teach, and there'd be up to, what, 60 other students joining the call to also okay. study, wow. which was amazing. Yeah. And we all got work done together. Yeah. So I think that was very, very rewarding. So, yeah. Are you at a point now with edX, your business, um, where it's automated or are you still quite hands-on? A lot of things are automated. The things that I'm not good at. So marketing, um, admin, et cetera, is all automated. And I get to focus on what I do best, which is a mentoring and teaching my students and a bit of resource creation. Um, But I think definitely there can be improvements to any business model. But um, then again, my goal is not to make the most profitable business in fact i advise all students tutoring is not a great business model per se yeah. especially if you're trying to make profit i okay. think startups or scalable ideas with zero cost of replication and distribution digital based products for example is the place to go for profit but for me like i told you my passion is teaching mm-hmm. and so this was the most direct applicable thing i could do as a student to still make an impact as a teacher so i think no matter what I'm very happy and I'm very proud of what we did in teaching and mentoring students. Are you looking to expand? Opening uh, a second center? Because currently you have one center okay. in the online platform. Yeah, I guess the goal now is take it as it goes. So, mm-hmm. you know, see how students respond to, you know, how the teaching has been, which has been amazing so far, um, and go from there. And have a student seem fit, I guess we'll take it that way. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, I see all the, 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 the marketing stuff for yeah, edX yeah. as well. I mean, quite popular too. And you're, um, you do like, you have the online platform as well. So. We do online in center because yeah. I also think that, you know, your location should not limit you to great education. Yeah. So if students are in rural Australia, students are really far from our center, they can still get mentoring and education from me and all our resources um, for, you know, the most affordable price that we can give. Yeah, fair enough. I mean... I still don't know how you balance all that because I was just thinking like you and doing placements, yes, coming home and then teaching. Yeah, teaching, then marking, then website creation, and then you know admin stuff, yeah. and then enrollment workflows, and creating timetables, and but it was amazing. I would not take, I would not change a thing. I think it was fun. Did you fit any extracurricular act like gymming or yeah, sleeping? I still, I, still, Did you I still made sure no matter yeah. what this year that I gymmed at least three, four times a week. It's my little therapy, you know, yeah. it's free therapy. So yeah, taking care of my physical health is also a very important thing for me where if my physical health isn't good, my mental health won't be good. Mm-hmm. So um, I made sure I took care of that. And then also trying to do podcasting and YouTubing on the side, which was its own challenge because it takes, what, eight hours to edit a single YouTube video for me. Yeah. And um, But it's been amazing learning. Yeah. And I guess you'll still be learning, you know, exactly. you're actively learning even exactly. in this field. I mean, building on top of that, so... You decided to start your own YouTube channel, mm. Prithvi Santana. Yeah, on YouTube. <laughs> my name. <laughs> yeah, your name. As is. Um, and you ca- often have the same aim as us, like to educate the younger generation, mentor the younger generation, basically. And you talk about a v- wide variety of topics like investing, entrepreneurship, finding happiness, uh, what it's like to be a medical student, and like we mentioned before, the study live streams as well. Yeah. 
Um, so I want to firstly ask, what were your main motivations behind starting the YouTube channel and creating videos? Yeah. And your inspirations? So I think we mentioned earlier, yeah. you know, from me watching YouTubers, I learned so many principles for my HSC year, also about life, having fun and medicine and what it's like. So instead of doing work experience, I'd watch YouTube videos about doctors and their day in their life. Yeah. And that would give me a bit of a perspective on what the field was like. So I think YouTube was always a platform where I learned so much. I got so much enjoyment from. And on top of that, a lot of the YouTubers I was watching really did encourage viewers to share their own story. You know, if they're doing something creative, dynamic, to share their story, show their work, find, you know, the tribe of like-minded people. Because, you know, you could probably have like 100 best friends all over, you know, planet Earth, which you just will never be able to meet them, right? But you'd have similar personalities, similar goals. And I think YouTube kind of enables you to find people that are like-minded, that are passionate about your cause and connect. And I think that really gives you a lot of happiness. And on top of that, I also wanted to, you know, share my experiences, my travel you know, mm -hmm. capture that so I can look back on it for my happiness as well. Yeah. Uh, externalize accountability. I will tell people my goals and I have to hit my goals now because I made an entire YouTube video about what I'm going to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And in the process, it will really help my personal growth as well. So my reasons for starting YouTube had nothing to do with viewers or subscribers and I don't really mind about that. It was much more about the journey of creating videos, storytelling, hitting my creative side, externalizing accountability. Fair enough. I mean, one of the most interesting videos I found of yourself was one, the Finding Happiness one. Mm. Um, you talked about a theory in that. I forgot Prospect the theory. Prospect yeah, theory. which is an economic theory. I that mean, explain, I explain that for about me. happiness. Yeah. So I use this theory. It's an economic theory of decision making to understand happiness in my decisions. So prospect theory, it basically states that humans weigh decisions or prospects uh, relative to one another. And one of the principles is we weigh them relative to our status quo. So right now, everything you have, your car, your house, your belongings, your friends, girlfriend may, may not be, you know, all of that is your status quo. And eventually, you know, it's your neutral point. Mm -hmm. And what happens is if you lose any of those things, you will get sad because that's a drop to your status quo. Whereas happiness is elicited by gains to that status quo. And basically what prospect theory states is that you should focus ideally on lowering your status quo, number one. Mm -hmm. So minimizing all that baggage, which is your neutral state. So that could mean, for example, you know, not trying to get, you know, a lot of clothes and cars, etc. Because, you know, if you lose that or it gets damaged, it reduces your happiness. But also on top of re-anchoring your status quo, it's all about uh, looking at gains to that status quo that are dynamic, and it's things like relationships, experiences, travel, giving back to others that are statistically proven to provide long-term gains. And they take a longer time to be integrated into that status quo compared to buying the new Tesla, mm. right? So my whole life understanding of happiness is I focus on things such as building relationships with others, working on a cause of serving other people, traveling, etc rather than buying shoes and a nice car, which was what 2017 me was very interested in for happiness. I remember, yeah. yeah. Look, I think on your Instagram. I got the, I got the fanciest shoes still. <laughs> I just can't wear it. <laughs> and I think, yeah, the, the important point was like keeping your, your base is very low yeah. so that anything above it, you know, you get a quite a big gain. Exactly. And focus happiness. on gains that are dynamic rather than static. Yeah, for sure. And the second video I found really interesting, I mean, all of them are interesting, but was investing. And I wanted to bring up the point of how important do you think investing is for high school students and starting early? Because I didn't understand investing in high school. Mm. No one teaches you investing mm. in high school, even though they should really. 100%. You know, I think the schooling system is, it's good because, yeah. you know, I got out of schooling system and I did okay. But I think there are improvements that can be made. And that's, again, why I think Gen Entrepreneur and the Entrepreneurial Mindset podcast is something that I think can change an entire student's life and perspective. So I think what you guys are doing is amazing. Uh, for investing, I think the thing, the thing that I thought was, you know, why should I worry about saving money as a young person when I'm going to make money in my future as a, mm -hmm. as a career? And I think a lot of people yeah. have that understanding, and so they spend and splurge. And this is before I understood the power of compound interest, mm -hmm. where you make money on the money that you make. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty much the principle. And to the point where for the audience, you know, if you assume 10% returns in the stock market, which is about average, 
over a decade, your money doubles, right? Mm -hmm. And if you imagine, imagine putting $100,000, doubling that once, that's 200, doubling it again, 400, 800, 1.6 million. Already. Well, in 40 years. Exactly. Yeah. The power of compound interest is exponential gains. Yeah. And I think the reason why investing is important is it takes away money as an issue in your later life. I never want to have to work mm. for money. I never want to have to work paycheck to paycheck. And I want to be able to, if I think of an opportunity, maybe starting a charity, I want to have the human, the capital to be able to change that into reality. I think the thing people need to understand is to get any cause a great idea into the world, you need money, right? Whether it be a charity, a hospital, whether it be you know an orphanage, anything like that. You need to have capital so that other people can join your cause and work towards it. And I guess that's why, that's my goal or motivation to build capital. And that's why I wanted to invest early. So I think all people, all students, especially in year 12, should be looking into investing and investing early. I'm not talking about day trading or crypto, which is, (laughs) I don't know much about at all. But I guess starting off with understanding what an ETF is, right? Starting off to understand passive investing and starting that game and then going further based on what they're like. I think if anyone that's listening that's not in high school, you know, is like 23, 24, you can still start. It's yeah, never too, never too late. Too, too late, never yeah. too late. Even putting in the smallest amounts a yeah. week result in crazy, insane returns in decades from now that your future self will thank you for. I think an important thing is to realize the fact that without investing, you know, you're, as inflation goes up, your money that you have saved up oh, goes down. So much. It's crazy. Inflation yeah. is 2%, right? Right now. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's maybe even higher now, yeah, given the yeah. whole... Um, and you're experiencing so it, here, like fuel prices and stuff. Yeah. They're yeah. quite expensive now. Exactly. Exactly. So I think to maintain your happiness or to make you know decisions now to that are conducive to your future happiness, investing is one of the most important things you can do. So for the high school students listening then, What's like a, a good place to start you recommend? So if I was me, 17 years old, what I would do is I would smack myself and start, tell myself to start investing. Um, Don't buy I'd, those shoes. <laughs> you know, like start. that interstellar moment where you're <laughs> yeah, looking back going into the life. I, I really wish. I think that's one of my biggest regrets, not starting early. I started yeah. in 2019, I believe. Time's flying, flown. But uh, yeah, I would tell myself, first of all, to watch my YouTube video on investing <laughs> or any. I think there's great YouTube channels like New Money is one okay. of them I'll drop. Um, Hamish Hodder is another one I'll drop. There's a lot of great YouTube channels that tell you exactly what to do when you know nothing about investing. Mm-hmm. I think just starting to just passively read, take a few months to understand things and then start investing is the best thing you can do for your future self. Yeah. That's good. I think two two changes I made was one when I used to watch YouTube while eating. It's common, common thing. You know, yep. you want to watch something while eating. Instead of clicking on like a random vlog or yep. like a entertainment video, I just click on a financial video. So at least I'm learning something. I'm getting out of, getting something of knowledge out of that video. Yeah. And instead of sometimes listening to, I would still listen to music, but instead of listening to Spotify and just listening to the same songs over and over again, listen to an audiobook. Yeah. Exactly. I think Audible, again, is yeah. one of the things that's changed my life, or even Spotify podcasts. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, there's so many great ones. And I think one that I'll drop, there's a Young Investors podcast, which mm-hmm. is those two channels that I mentioned where they do, you know, every week they talk about a new economic um, point or what's happening in the markets or what companies are doing well, etc. I think just, immersing yourself in that field even if you don't do finance or economics really helps your financial literacy as well fair enough um talking about money what is a good financial decision made and a bad financial decision made that i made yeah i can tell you straight away what the bad financial decision was right so i went to la 2019. Yeah. Well, I'm going again in a week. Oh, really? 22nd of December, going to the US for a month. Yep. So it's my happiness um, kind of thing. But um, coming back to this, I went to LA. And uh, in LA, obviously, people spend a lot of money on things. Yes. I went to, uh, you know, the sneaker place where Complex, the YouTube channel, yes. does yes. you know sneaker yes. shopping. I went there. Okay. And I looked at the shoe at the very, very top. There was the off-white Air Jordan Unk or shoes, which is like blue, beautiful, flashy, not something you can wear every day at all, but beautiful looking. And I decided, let me get those shoes. It'll make me happy. Yeah. Got the shoes. Very amazing. You know, it cost thousands of dollars. And now it's just sitting on top of my computer monitor, um, just as an aesthetic piece. Um, It's still, I know, I, I don't 
regret regret it because it taught me a lot about happiness that this static you know objects per se don't make you happy and i think everyone has to experience that where they purchase something they really like and realize this has not made me happy in the long term i think the best financial decision i made was again starting investing right mm-hmm. i put putting money in an, in an exchange traded fund and never looking back was probably one of the best things that i did for myself mm, that's very insightful how much how much did the shoe set you back Ah, uh, it was about 1,800 USD. Oh, no. Given currency oh, conversion. No. Yeah. Oh. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> I mean, you live in... When you're, yeah, when you're in LA, you <laughs> make bad decisions. <laughs> but yeah. How many times have you worn those shoes? That's the thing. Since it's so expensive, you're scared to wear yes, them often. Yes, But I've worn them maybe five, six times in my life since in the past two years. That's crazy. But now they're more That's just really an good. aesthetic piece. Yeah. And you learn. So final thing um, is some lightning round questions that you're not familiar with. Okay, let's give it a go. Let me just... Did it include in the briefing? Okay. So just like one word or one sentence answers. One word or sentence. Just lightning just off the top of your head. Sure. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, Best piece of advice, uh, financial... um, You will never get wealthy renting your time for money. Fair enough. That's a financial piece of advice. What's the worst advice you've ever received? Uh, worst advice ever received? Um, hard work is success. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think what you work on and who you work with are also two other major pillars that contribute to success. Fair enough. What's one thing you're trying to learn or develop right now? Right now would be uh, video editing. Yep. It would be amazing that I'm working on right now, yeah. Yeah. What's one thing that you think other people value, but you don't really value? Uh, cars, clothes. Yep. Fair enough. Interesting. Yeah. And if you had to enact one law that everyone had to follow, what would it be? A law as in? Like any law that everyone had to follow and you, you, were, you were responsible for making it. Like if you, if you say, yes, this is a law, everyone has to follow it. A legal law? Yes. Oh... Um, this is less a law, more a principle, yep. but um, being as compassionate to others as you would be to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. No, that's great. Um, you know? Interesting lightning round. Yeah. <laughs> Put me on the spot. <laughs> Look, <laughs> that, that was an amazing episode. Learned so much and about I think I learned a, a lot from you guys with the questions you asked to force me to introspect on myself and, you know, what I like, what I want to do. So I think great questions, Vibe. And I'm looking forward to watching your other podcast episodes <laughs> from other great um, people who've done really good things. Yeah. Well, that concludes the this episode of The Entrepreneurial Mindset. I want to thank you once again for coming in, coming on. You know, we found a good time. You, I didn't know you were heading off to LA. Yeah. <laughs> next week, basically. Yeah. So you know. So thanks for having me. Thanks for finding time in your busy schedule. For you know? sure. And um, yeah, so that wraps it. Um, I'm Babe, and Prithvi. <laughs> yes. And this concludes the this episode of the Entrepreneurial Mindset. Thanks, guys.